Okay. Okay. Welcome. Well, this is a fantastic turnout, so thank you very much for coming. Um, and I do apologize to those of you who are in the spill-out room, which is uh, a measure of success for our book this evening. Uh, first of all, I, I'll say who I am. I'm Beverly Skeggs from the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Programme, which is within the International Inequalities Institute. And we're putting that up now because we're about to recruit for next year. It's all live. We are recruiting. There's going to be a webinar very soon. And I'd like to welcome this year's fellows who I see dotted around um, in this theatre to the LSE for the first time for one of these really large lectures. So tonight's lecture is the absolute opposite topic for the Inequalities Institute because it gives us the bigger picture and it moves between the structural analysis of the large global picture into the very intimate and personal. It's a perfect example of what inequalities research should be doing. It shows how the lives of uh, people are affected by these horrific inequalities. And it shows the differences between different countries. Tonight we'll discuss the new book, and we'll see that in a minute, which is the inner level, which is how more equal societies reduce stress, restore sanity, and improve everyone's well-being. Um, it follows on from the very successful, if you haven't read it, you should, Absolute classic now, the spirit level, um, which is why inequality is better for everyone, but I noticed that they changed the subtitle at one point as well. So we have really created subtitles, but basically the message is the same. Inequality is really bad for everyone, even the 1% who manage to benefit at the moment grossly whilst others are still suffering. So inequality is bad is the message, but it takes different forms, and that's what we're going to look at. To my left, we have Professor Kate Pickett and Professor Richard Wilkinson, who've been working on these topics for some time now at the University of York. They're both social epidemiologists, where Kate is also the university champion for justice and equality. They also both founded the Equality Trust, which is a site that pulls together lots of reports, a really, really good website that will tell you what's happening around the country and will draw your attention to particular issues. So the hashtag for the event will be LSE Inequalities, and we'll see that in a minute, but please put your phones on silent. This is because tonight's event will be recorded and will be made available usually in a couple of weeks as a podcast, subject to no technical difficulties. We know we've got a lot of people watching um, internationally, so please keep your phones on silent. Kate and Richard are going to speak for 50 minutes, then we'll open out for 30 minutes of questions. Um, and do please raise your hand because we will have people running around with microphones to make sure that you get a chance to answer a question. 
to warn you that we can't always get everybody in and it's always a disappointment and we have to kind of push you out at the end. Um, so be prepared. But also to say that Kate will be signing copies of the book outside after the lecture. So without ado, I'd like to say welcome. Thank you so much for coming to introduce this book. If you could give them a great round of applause. Well, thank you all for coming. It's uh, an honor to have uh, such a good turnout. Um, we are very pleased. Um, I want to take you through, um, although you've just been told we were dealing with, um, we were going to talk about a new book, I want to talk about our old book first. Um, <clears throat> where is the clicker? That's going to help you. <laughs> no clicker. Yeah, the clicker was here. Right, good, thank you. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I want to really put the uh, our spirit level book in context. Um, I think many people read it, they didn't know the background literature, and thought we, the, that all there was to our case was a, a set of cross-sectional cro correlations. Um, and in an audience like this, I want really to, to tell you it's, it's much more than that. But first I want to show, suggest that it's relevant to a sort of social malaise in our society, that uh, the levels of inequality and the effects we're talking about this evening um, are uh, fundamentally important to... And the, these pictures, the bottom one, is a photo taken outside Oxford Street tube station. You can see every face there is miserable, haggard, anxious, <laughs> depressed. They look as if they're going to have nervous breakdowns. And yet we all pose like that, like the top picture, as if life is wonderful. And I'm not on Facebook, but uh, I know if you read people's Facebook things, it sounds as if our lives fit those top pictures, the top picture. But uh, the bottom one actually is, uh, uh, tells us quite a lot about the truth. Um, <clears throat> this Mental Health Foundation survey uh, a few months ago uh, really provides some of the data that, that backs up that uh, picture, really, that three-quarters of adults felt so stressed or overwhelmed uh, that they felt unable to cope sometime in the past year. And uh, almost a third of adults had had suicidal feelings as a result of stress in the last year. Um, and not in the last year, but in their lifetime, 16% of ad adults had self-harmed as a result of stress. And of course, self-harm has been rising, so the figures will be higher than that. And, you know, our societies are meant to be at the peak of well-being, um, higher standards of, of uh, um, material uh, wealth and so on than, than ever before. And yet, something fundamentally different is going on, fundamentally important. So bear that in mind uh, as we talk. Um, it seems to me that there are two very different views of inequality. The, the popular view, I think, is, is a pretty naive view. It's the idea that inequality only matters if it creates poverty. But actually, much nearer the truth is what it does to feelings of uh, superiority and inferiority, dominance and subordination, how it links up with our sensitivities to, to social status and how we're seen and how we're judged. 
Um, and it's, it's really the psychological effects of inequality uh, that uh, we've covered in our most recent book, um, The Inner Level, that came out in uh, June, I think. Um, what we're going to show you is uh, basically a rather a lot of graphs looking like that with different problems up the side. Um, when, when I found, I'm, I'm sure you people, when you have to give a lecture, you go and look at Google Images. That's where this comes from. Um, I felt really pleased. Somebody's understood, um, even if it was only one person. Um, I think that when we go through the range of, of, of problems that we showed were correlated, at least cross-sectionally, internationally with um, uh, inequality, um, uh, people are astonished by the range of things. I mean, much higher rates of school bullying in more unequal countries, much higher homicide rates, more people in prison, um, weaker community life, weaker levels of trust. Um, drug abuse goes up, infant mortality goes up, life expectancy, mental illness, obesity, uh, all more common in more unequal societies, by which simply I mean bigger income differences between rich and poor. Um, and then some things we've classified as human capital, child well-being, high school dropout rates from uh, U.S. Uh, uh, data, maths and literacy scores, social mobility and teenage birth rates. People look at those and say, how can income inequality affect all these outcomes? They all have one important factor in common. They all have social gradients. They're all more common at the bottom of the social hierarchy. And it's these problems which get worse in societies which have those big income differences. So in a way, all we're saying is something extraordinarily simple that problems we know are related to social status within our societies get worse when you increase the social status differences. Um, and it, it really is extraordinarily simple, and it shouldn't have been something that was a sort of uh, new idea. We should always have known about this. We've always known that endless problems are more common at the bottom of society. Um, the other thing is that people took our work, show, which was really an attempt to get uh, a picture that had been developing in the academic literature, out into the public arena. So, you know, uh, we were trying to show uh, the data, the effects of inequality, in the simplest possible ways. So we chose countries where GNP per capita no longer matters very much, the rich developed countries, so we didn't have to uh, use complicated, well, statistics people would find complicated, controlling for GNP per capita. But basically, in the academic literature, the first papers showing that inequality was damaging to health and uh, led to increases in violence uh, came out in the 1970s. There are now over 300 papers looking at these issues um, in the journals. And uh, people have controlled for just about everything under the sun. They've controlled for levels of education. There are multi-level multi models. There are meta-analyses of multi-level models of cohorts aging over time. Um, we know quite a lot about the causal orderings um, and beginning to understand the lag times better. 
We actually, when we realized that it was problems with social gradients that got worse in more unequal societies, we did a formal test of that. We looked at uh, different uh, causes of death, Um, some that have a steep social gradients, you know, like heart disease and respiratory disease, and others that have little or no social gradient, like breast cancer or prostate cancer. And sure enough, you found the steeper their social gradient, the stronger their relationship with inequality for the whole society. So it is basically a very simple uh, picture um, that we've been trying to uh, bring people's attention to. I want now to convince you that this is about sensitivity to social status. We are not evolved to be sensitive to whether or not we have the latest iPhone. We are evolved to be sensitive to our position in the social hierarchy. I want to read you a quote from a study by, I can't remember whether it is Robin or Robert Walker at Oxford, um, a paper from the Journal of Social Policy a few years ago. Um, They interviewed people um, in poverty, regarded as in in poverty, in a number of different societies. Um, In Uganda, in India, China, Pakistan, Korea, the United Kingdom and Norway. And of course poverty means totally different things in material terms in those different societies. And in in India, I guess it meant living in a a shack with an earth floor and no proper drainage or water supply. Um, In uh, Norway, um, it means living probably in a three-bedroom flat with central heating and a flat-screen television. And yet, what they found when they interviewed poor people was the experience of poverty, despite those material differences, um, were extraordinarily different. Um, so, uh, I'll just read you um, uh, some of their conclusions. They say, respondents universally despised poverty and frequently despised themselves for being poor. Parents were often despised by their children, women despised their menfolk, and some men were reported to take out their self-loathing on their partners and children. Despite respondents generally believing that they had done their best against all odds, they mostly considered that they had both failed themselves by being poor and that others saw them as failures. This internalization of shame was further externally reinforced in the family, the workplace, and in their dealings with officialdom. Even children couldn't escape this shaming, for with the possible exception of Pakistan, school was an engine of social grading, a place of humiliation for those without the possessions that guaranteed social acceptance. No parent was able to escape the shame of failing to provide for their children, even when children were prepared to stop asking for things. For men, relying on others or on welfare benefits was perceived as a challenge to their sense of masculinity. A British father to two children admitted, I feel like shit. I'm meant to be the man in this relationship. I'm um, to take care of the missus and my kids, and I don't. So it's that awareness that the psychological effects of being in an inferior social position that I think is uh, uh, close to the heart of the um, relationships um, we've been drawing attention to. Um, 
I think it's important to recognize that we're not, in, when drawing attention to the important uh, causal effects of income distribution, uh, that we're not talking about something quite separate from class and status. We're talking about, if you like, a modifier of class and status, that bigger material differences between us lead to bigger social uh, status differences, di bigger social distances, if you like. Um, uh, and increasingly, we believe that um, uh, bigger income differences um, make class and status more important, more powerful um, in the way they influence our lives. Um, but also um, more important in the way uh, we judge each other. Um, I want now to in just give you, uh, before Kate takes over, um, we're going to do roughly half each, um, a sort of nugget of the, an idea of the damaging effect, what, what inequality does to social relationships. And I think that is the heart of it. There are a number of studies that show that uh, involvement in communi community life, uh, civic participation, involvement in local groups, membership of uh, um, voluntary associations and so on, uh, is lower in more unequal societies. We also know that levels of trust are lower. Uh, I should say, all these relationships uh, we've shown and other people have shown in other settings, not only just amongst this bunch of countries, but amongst the American states, 50 American states, for instance, very similar pictures. There are also papers that show that um, people are less willing to help each other in more unequal societies, less willing to help the disabled, um, the elderly, and so on. So you start to lose that sort of sense of reciprocity, the involvement with each other, willingness to help each other. And uh, now very well attested in, in research is the rise in, in violence as measured by homicide rates. Um, this is the work of uh, Martin Daly and Margot Wilson. Uh, the red dots are American states. The blue triangles are... Um, <clears throat> our Canadian provinces. And you see there are uh, something like tenfold differences. You've got about 15 homicides per million there, and it goes up to 150. When we talk to American audiences, they often suggest that it's to do with ethnic divisions, and they see all the problems with social gradients as, uh, as really uh, most common in, in the African-American communities. Um, and when that uh, suggestion was raised uh, as a criticism of um, Daly and Wilson's work, their response was to look at uh, the uh, perpetrators, white perpetrators of homicide, i.e. white murderers, and measure inequality just amongst the white population. The relationship is almost unchanged. Um, so this isn't something that is a proxy for uh, something like eth ethnic divisions. Um, however, if you move towards much more unequal societies than the societies we've been showing you here, more unequal societies than Britain and the United States, you see these processes have gone a stage further. Um, we've given some lectures in Mexico. We went to Guernavaca, and 
house after house has bars on the windows, bars on the doors, uh, razor wire around fences around their yards. Um, and you can see people are frightened of each other in those countries with very high income differences. And the same in South Africa. I'm sorry, this is a blurred picture. That's an electric fence uh, along the top. And this notice, if it wasn't so blurred, you could read it says armed response. If you're caught climbing in, you might get shot. What I find really remarkable, though, is that uh, that sort of suggestion I've given you of a transition from societies where people are involved with each other, where there is a bit of give and take reciprocity, to these societies where people are afraid of each other, don't trust each other, much higher levels of violence. Um, that picture is, con is confirmed by an extraordinarily different kind of data. Um, this comes from Bowles and Jadef, two American economists. They've shown these relationships internationally and for American states. Uh, as before, you have inequality along the bottom, the more unequal societies that end. And uh, the proportion of the labor force in each country involved in what they call guard labor, uh, security staff, police, prison officers, Basically, the people we use to protect ourselves from each other, that increases with inequality. Um, uh, and that seems to me to show exactly uh, what I was suggesting that this series of slides I've just shown you uh, tells us about the damage to the quality of social relationships in a society. Um, and what I think is perhaps worst about it is, of course, the studies of health and happiness increasingly show that our well-being depends uh, on the quality of social relationships. Friendship is hugely protective of health. Uh, you know, in terms of survival rates after um, an initial um, baseline measurements, it really matters whether people have good friendships, whether they have many friends and so on. Uh, after you've taken account of initial, initial levels of illness. It's not, uh, it, it, whether people not have friends or not is at least as important as whether or not they smoke to survival over follow-up periods. Um, and of course the studies of happiness show, again, the quality of your relationships, the number of your friends, whether you're involved in community life is crucially important to the quality of all our lives. Um, so, it's there that inequality really strikes, at those issues to do with the, the quality of our relationships. I think why we have become so sensitive to these issues, in a way, um, and it, it, it came as a great surprise. Kate and I, um, uh, back, our background was in trying to understand health inequalities, the big class differences in death rates. And I think everyone in the field was very surprised that things like social status seemed important, um, low social status damaging, bigger status differences damaging, and friendship, as I've said, uh, so beneficial. But basically, those are the two opposite ways in which we can come together. You know, in, as members of the same species, we all have the same needs. I can fight you for everything uh, that we both want, both need. Um, 
you know, whether it's food, nesting sites, um, whatever it is, um, sexual partners, uh, there's also always this potential for conflict among members of any uh, of the same species. Um, but the opposite way of dealing with that is to recognize each other's need, um, uh, to cooperate. And that has been always so important to human welfare that we have developed this extraordinary sensitivity um, uh, to friendship. And we know about social strategies to maintain friendship. We also know about dominant strategies. Um, we see it embedded in the language, words like companion, combine, con and pan. You know, our friends are the people we share resources with. Um, and uh, even in the sort of religious symbolism of the communion service um, in, in Catholicism, uh, there's the, that idea of, of sharing as being, abs and it crops up in other forms, of course, in other world religions. I do think that this uh, statement of Marshall Salins, um, who I think is a wonderful anthropologist, I haven't met him, I'd love to, um, he said he, he, he really spent his life studying hunting and gathering societies based on food sharing, on gift exchange, extraordinarily egalitarian societies, which covered 90% of our existence as human beings. He said gifts make friends and friends make gifts. The gift is the symbolism, symbol that I recognize your need. I'm not going to fight you for access. Um, and your sense perhaps of indebtedness, um, which some psychologists say is universal, uh, he says creates the basic social compact between us. Um, so I think at the most fundamental level, perhaps that's what we're dealing with. Now I'm going to uh, leave it to Kate to take over and tell you about our, particularly about our more recent work. You can, yes, shall I put it on? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Um, you know how Richard said that um, friendship was as good f for your health as smoking is bad for it? Um, public speaking is probably the most stressful thing and worst thing for your health that anybody can do. Um, and he's got through his bit, but it's my, my turn now. Um, you will see my status anxiety exhibiting itself. Um, Earlier on, Richard put up that very, very simple, lovely image that just said problems, inequality, they're related. I'm going to show you lots of graphs like that, I'm afraid. But if you understood that one, you will get, get all of these. Um, this one is from our earlier book, and we created an index of health and social problems that had all of the kinds of things in it that Richard was talking about earlier. Health things like life expectancy, infant mortality, obesity, mental illness. It had things to do with human capital development, like social mobility and teenage pregnancy and educational measures. And it had things to do with social functioning, like trust and imprisonment and violence. And we found that it was so strongly related to inequality that we had to sort of try and understand why that was. So the key messages from that first book which we published about a decade ago. It took us a year to write, and it's taken us 10 years to write the second one. Um, 
was that lots of things are affected by inequality. The differences between different societies are really large. They're much too large to be explained by the number of people in poverty in different countries. And the other key message was that we're all affected by inequality. So it's not just a difference between the poor and the rest of us. We're all affected by inequality. We found that this was true if we looked at other people's indexes of, of wealth, sorry, of health and well-being. So this is the UNICEF index of child well-being, which was first published um, in 2007. The UK came absolute bottom um, for child well-being in 2007. We're doing a little bit better now in this more recent one from, from 2015. Um, but this index of child well-being has about 38, 40 different things in it. It's whether kids are vaccinated, whether they get on with their peers, whether they can talk to their parents, whether they eat their fruits and vegetables, whether they have books at home, etc. So whether we create our own index or look at somebody else's index, we find this strong association with income inequality. And actually in this same paper... We looked at changes in income inequality over a 10-year period and changes in the UNICEF index of child well-being. And those countries that had become more unequal saw a deterioration in their child well-being, just as we would expect, and those that had become a little bit more equal did better. <coughs> Lots of people think that it's okay to have some level of inequality because we live in a meritocracy and those who are clever, work hard, um, they'll rise up. The stupid and the lazy will move down. And so inequality is okay because we live in a meritocracy and it rewards effort and capability. This isn't true. You can't have equality of opportunity if you haven't got equality of outcome. Here we're looking at social mobility, and you can see it's much higher in the more equal societies and much lower in the more unequal societies. So if you want to um, experience the American dream, then you should go and live in Denmark, <laughs> or possibly Finland. You can't have it here. Um, and, and so this idea that we've got this sort of sorting system and, the, you know, everybody meretricious moves up and everybody who's not worth much moves down, um, it's a bit bonkers. Politicians across the political spectrum will say that they think equality of opportunity is a good idea. Not enough of them recognize that to have that, you need to have greater equality of outcomes. So here's mental illness in relation to income inequality. This comes from our Spirit Level book from 10 years ago, but really it's the starting point for our new book. So what we're looking at here is the prevalence of mental illness in rich, developed countries. Um, people used to think you couldn't compare levels of mental illness in different countries because they would be affected by treatment, um, culture... Um, health services, that kind of thing. But the World Health Organization wanted to understand whether or not there were differences in mental illness in different countries. So they did 
population-based surveys of large random samples of the adult population, and they asked them questions about symptoms. So they didn't say, have you been diagnosed with depression or anxiety or whatever? Have you been treated for mental illness? They asked about um, your appetite and your sleep patterns and, and your worries, that kind of thing. And they can classify people into different mental illness groups. So that's where these data come from, those kinds of surveys. Strong relationship with income inequality, even though we don't have that many countries for which we have those surveys. So in the more equal societies, you know, around 10% of the population have had some kind of mental illness in the past year. But for us, here in the UK, with these measures, it was 23%. And for the US, it was 26%, so more than one in four. And think of those statistics that Richard showed you a little bit earlier, about three quarters of us feeling so stressed in the past year that we feel like we cannot cope. When we published this in the British Journal of Psychiatry, a psychiatrist wrote in and said, um, this is pathologizing normal feelings, you know, we're diagnosing too many people. Um, how can Wilkinson and Pickett actually believe that 23% of us have had a mental illness in the past year? So I sort of thought about friends, family, colleagues, way more than 23%. And anyway, it was sort of missing the point, because the point isn't really, is 23% the right number for the UK? The point is, why is the UK on the same measures that we're doing everywhere else so much higher than all of these other countries? Why have we got such a high level of distress in our population You know, that's affecting our young people to the degree that a quarter of them are self-harming at the age of 14? Why is our suicide rate going up? You know, why are we having so many of these problems? And when... I do you remember after we published The Spirit Level, we went to America and, and did the tour when, when the book came out there, and we went back to the university where I'd worked for four years, the University of Chicago, which is a little bit snooty. You know, it's a bit like Oxford, Cambridge, and dare I say it, possibly even the LSE, you know. So it's, one of, it's one of those places where, you know, they, they think they're really, you know, top-notch. Um, and, and when you give a talk at the University of Chicago, if you get through three PowerPoint slides before they start slamming into you, you've done really, really well. So, so we went there, and they, they're all people I know, and I said, could you please be really kind to me, because I've been away for four years, and I've forgotten how to cope with you. Like, no, no. And we showed them all of our work, didn't we? And at the end, we were talking about a hypothesis that anxieties about status were underpinning all of the relationships we'd shown them between inequality and health and social problems. And at the end they said, well, that's all very well, but you haven't shown us that. And they were right. We were making inferences, we were, we were thinking that that was the reason, but nobody had shown it. And now they have. And what's really nice is that it wasn't us. I mean, that's the good thing, isn't it? Somebody else has shown that. So this paper from um, Richard Late and Christopher Whelan in Ireland looked at anxieties about status, people's worries about their status in 28 different European countries. Some high inequality countries, that's the top line, medium inequality, bottom line, 
low inequality, the very bottom line. And they looked at anxieties about status among those who were in the poorest tenth of the population all the way through the income distribution to the richest tenth. If you're poor, wherever you live, of course, you worry more about your status. But you, if you live in an unequal society, everybody worries about it more. And so this is sort of the real starting point for our new book, is trying to sort of see what does that do to us? What does that do to the way we think, the way we feel, the way we behave, the way we interact? And what we find is that, of course, it affects us all profoundly. We were really, I think, very deeply impressed by research conducted by Sherry Johnson, a neuropsychologist or biologist from California, who looked at what's called the dominance behavioral system. And this is a system that we have as humans, animals have it as well. It's how we react physiologically, hormonally, emotionally, behaviorally to issues of subordination and dominance. You know, if we feel that we're encountering somebody else, who views us as inferior, we view them as inferior, how we react. And she found all kinds of um, markers of mental illness related to the dominance behavioral system. So that if people felt more inferior, they were more likely to be depressed and anxious. If people were trying to assert their superiority, they were more likely to be narcissistic or psychotic. But she didn't link these things to levels of inequality in society. Um, but actually, all of the conditions that she showed are linked to the behavioral, dominance behavioral system, are linked to inequality as well. So we see two different kinds of response to inequality. The first is to accept your inferiority, to worry about your status, and become depressed and anxious. We see more depression in more unequal societies. And this is just one graph that shows that. We see more anxiety. But we can also react a different way by exaggerating our self-importance, by bigging ourselves up, by thinking if status matters a huge amount, then I'd better put on a good face and say that I'm, I'm doing all right. This is a graph that shows self-enhancement is higher in more unequal societies. And self-enhancement is a term that psychologists use to describe people thinking that they're better than they are, right? So you might know the story that most American drivers think they're better than average, right? 96% of Americans think they are a better driver than average. <laughs> You're a sophisticated audience. You've got that right away. Only, only two-thirds of Swedes think they're better than average, right? It's still too much. It's still too great. Um, and we're obviously never going to get to Michael Gove's all schools will be better than average kind, kind of thing. Um, but this, this is psychologists asking people, random samples of the adult population in different countries, do you think you're a better driver than other people? Do you think you're better looking than other people? Are you a nicer person? Are you more intelligent? Um, Etc. 
and people are much more likely to self-enhance if they live in a more unequal society. So this is the other kind of response to anxieties about status. You can get depressed, you can go under, or you can kind of fight against it and try and claw your way up. And because of this, we see narcissism rising over time in the United States. These are data from Jean Twenge, psychologist from California. Um, um, and we plotted them against income inequality rises over the same time period. And I would recommend her work to you. She's written a book called The Narcissism Epidemic. And I think it's really important to actually understand um, the impact that this kind of self-enhancement is having in society. It's got lots of funny stories in it. It's got stories about the um, high school student who wanted her road closed and red carpet laid down so she could go to her prom. Um, the story of the bride who had her wedding cake baked in the shape of herself. Um, Paparazzi. And, yeah, uh, thank you for reminding me, you can hire fake paparazzi to follow you around, right? So, you know, you go out on the town and they come out and they follow me going, Kate, Kate, come on, show us, show us your legs. Um, <laughs> fake paparazzi. But jokes aside, narcissism isn't really that funny. So people with narcissistic tendencies, personalities, traits, disorders, cause huge problems for their families, for their friends, for their colleagues. Um, and if you take a moment to think about how awful it would be if a narcissist rose to a position of power <laughs> in a major country in this world, Bad one, really. Um, schizophrenia, too. Schizophrenia is more common in more unequal societies. Psychotic symptoms are more common in more unequal societies. Delusions of grandeur are a huge part of lots of people's psychosis. Inequality matters, right? So it makes some of us go under. It makes some of us strive upwards. Lots of us just try to cope with it um, through mechanisms that give us comfort. So we see more comfort eating, more calorie intake in more unequal societies. We see more drug and alcohol use. Um, we see more gambling, more problem gambling. This isn't just having a flutter on the um, Grand National, which we do every year in our village sweepstake. <laughs> We won it twice running, and that made me think I'd got some special insight. <coughs> so I tried it online the following year. Rubbish, rubbish. Um, this is problem gambling. You see higher levels of problem gambling in more unequal societies. And so we also see people trying to increase their status through what they buy. It is how we show other people that we're worth something, right? So if you have second-class, third-class goods, you're a second-class, third-class person, right? If you have things that other people want, things that show your status, bigger car, bigger house, designer labels, etc., etc., um, 
that's how you cope. And so we see higher levels of consumerism and overconsumption, status consumption in more unequal societies. We've got academic studies now looking at um, different countries, different US states, and showing that status consumption is higher in more unequal societies. <laughs> if you want to have a go yourselves and show your worth a lot, get yourself a Louis Vuitton rubbish bag and put your rubbish out in a designer trash bag. Um, if those are a little bit unaffordable, you can just go on eBay and you can buy other people's used designer carrier bags and then you can go out on the high street, buy whatever you want and put it in your Gucci paper bag. Um, but obviously, if we're starting to think about how we move to sustainable economies, how we move towards economies that don't focus on endless growth, that focus on well-being instead, we are going to have to rein in this tendency, this idea that the things we own show people how important we are. We can't make that transition towards sustainability if we allow status consumption and over-consuming to sort of carry on running rampant. There's more advertising in more unequal countries, which I think underpins what I've just showed you. And therefore, of course, there are higher levels of debt. This is income inequality and household debt over time in the United States. Debt is a huge issue for us here in the UK. British levels of debt are phenomenally bad. And debt is one of the worst things you can have for sort of mental health, well-being, for children as well as adults. In households where people are in debt, everybody's worried, nobody's sleeping well, everybody's anxious, everybody's depressed. We thought we should put up a couple of um, peer-reviewed papers. <laughs> For those of you who'd like to sort of learn a little bit more, um, the top one is a causal review of all of the studies of income inequality and health, and the bottom one is more of a sort of theoretical look at um, the impact of inequality. Um, if you can't find them, drop us an email and we will send them to you. So I think we're going to stop there. We did think, and we, we often spend time towards the end of a talk, talking about solutions. What can we do to fix this problem? What should we be doing to create more equal societies? But, you know, we're, we're not experts in that. We're epidemiologists. We understand the causes of health, disease, disorder, dysfunction. We've got those tools and we can think about those really well. When it comes to solutions, we've got some guesses and we've got some opinions, but they are just guesses and they are just opinions. And yours will be as good as ours. Um, and when I've read reviews of our most recent book, what's been really nice is that nobody's questioning the science anymore. The science is really solid, guys. It's so robust. When Richard showed you that chart with all those different things affected by inequality, we were on the train coming down here, and I said, don't show them that. It's so out of date. The lists are so long. So many more things have been linked to inequality than they were 10 years ago. The science is extremely robust. We have longitudinal studies. You know, we, have, we just have loads and loads of stuff. 
But what we do about it, that's what people are arguing about at the moment. They, that's what they say, well, I didn't like that in a level book because I don't agree with the solutions. Fine. That's fine. Come up with your own. It shouldn't be up to a couple of epidemiologists to write the charter for how we deal with inequality in this country. It should be up to government. It should be up to policymakers. It should be up to local government. It should be up to all of us as we vote and think. It's not up to us. So we'd really like to hear your ideas in the question and answer session about what we should do about all of this. Thanks. Okay, so I will open it out to questions straight away because I'm sure there's quite a lot. If you can raise your hands, I need to make sure people have got the microphones out. So there's a, a hand over here. I'll go on this side first. So we've got, we'll take three at a time if that's okay, okay yeah, with that's you. One, <laughs> two, and then three. Can I just say before we start the questions that I'm very deaf. Uh, so speak loudly, slowly, and clearly. And I'll write it down. <laughs> yes, please. Um, thank you for a fascinating presentation. Um, I'm really looking forward to reading the book. Um, I was curious to know what you thought about the implications of your research for people on the upper end of the social hierarchy, because it seems like a lot of these problems are related to people who suffer from low status, but... Obviously, correcting that requires some people to be brought down a peg. And um, as we've seen from the Senate hearings with Brett Kavanaugh, that doesn't always work out well. <laughs> so I wondered um, if you had something to say about um, people on the upper end of the social hierarchy. Hey, George, just pass the microphone back. That might be easier. Okay, yeah. I think it's... One, two, three more rows back after we did that. And then I'll go in the middle. <laughs> um, Andrew and Kate, thanks a lot for your presentation. And Kate, I think your fear of public speaking is completely unfounded. Yeah, exactly. this, was, this was quite amazing. <laughs> um, in the spirit level, uh, I, was looking, I was just looking at a chapter about mental illness and uh, inequality. And there you kind of hint that the relationship between male mental illness uh, and inequality is different or less clear compared to female mental illness. And inequality. So I was just wondering, for in your research for inner level, has that changed, or are there yeah. any kind of um, deeper insights on the difference between male and female uh, mental illness and inequality? Thanks a lot. Great. Just, um, I think, Lauren. Hello, my name is Lauren Burke. I'm one of the Atlantic Fellows here. Thank you for coming and doing this amazing presentation. Um, your last point was that part of fixing this takes an increase in civic participation. How is inequality and the rise of mental illness and these social problems um, impacting civic participation and civic participation levels? It seems like we're on a, a reinforcing cycle here where, where the increase in inequality and the impacts on society also make it more difficult to fix those problems. So I'd, I'd be interested in your comments on that. Okay. Are you ready with us? I'll start. Yeah, and you do the next. Um, The rich, the upper end of the income distribution, um, people often ask us what what we should do about that. And, you know, we have to remember we live in a democracy or what's meant to be a democracy. And, uh, you know, if it is really about the the 1% and the 99% or or, or, or 10% and then 90%, 
Democracy ought to be able to make that uh, possible to get change. If you look at the long-term trends in income distribution in the 20th century, uh, they start to fall from somewhere around the 1930s and continue, we continue to get more equal in most developed countries until sometime in the late 1970s. And then you get the, the rise, the modern rise of inequality. Um, and that, I think, is a reflection uh, of the power of the labor movement, social democratic parties, the fear of communism, um, but it tells us something about the scale of the movement, the sustained social movement you have to have, and an idea that society can work uh, differently um, to, to really make changes. But I also think the book by Anthony Appiah, The Honor Code, who talks about, he goes through examples of uh, social practices that have changed historically, uh, and he says in each case, um, it was because they ceased to be sources of uh, respect and esteem and status. Uh, and so if we can make the rich uh, uh, feel they're not respected for taking all they can get, uh, but are regarded as antisocial and greedy, uh, you know, that might help. Already there are occasional news stories about some CEOs not taking quite as much as they could. Um, but... It is quite a difficult idea to get hold of. These ones work here, I think. You know, the, the idea that, that, that the rich are affected by inequality um, as well as the poor. They're not affected as much, but they are affected. And I, I think that's quite a tough idea for people to grasp. No, but we know about the top 10% or the top, top 20%. Um, we went on the Today programme just after the inner level was published, and I told John Humphreys that even with his very, very high salary, <laughs> which we all know about, don't we, um, he, he would be more likely to live longer, have better mental health, his children do better in a more unequal society. More equal society. In a more equal society. And he, he, he found that quite, quite hard to think about. And I used to think that all we had to do was show people yeah, all we had to do was show them the evidence that, you know, even at the top, you're more likely to, to not do well. Now, I've had a PhD student looking at five-year-old children's life chances in more equal and less equal countries and, and showing that, you know, even those of the, in families with the highest income parents, the most educated parents, etc., they don't do as well as they would if they lived in a more equal country. And I, I used to think that that kind of evidence would be enough to get those in power and those with high incomes and the most educated and the highest social class to recognize um, the damage that inequality is doing to them. I wasn't right. Um, it, it's going to take a lot more than that, but I do think it's an important first step, and we do have that evidence. So that is an important first thing, isn't it? Sex differences. Oh, the mental illness. Yeah, yeah, really good question. So when, when we were writing the spirit level and we wanted to do comparative studies of mental illness, you know, comparing different societies, um, we'd got the World Health Organization surveys that I showed you for different countries, but all we had for the United States, for the different U.S. states, because we always tried to look at the 50 U.S. states as well as the different rich countries as a different test bed, 
were data from um, a survey where people self-reported whether or not they had had mental illness in, in, in a time period. Um, and we found that inequality was related to mental illness for children and, and women, but not for men. I think that was driven by the kinds of things I was showing around self-enhancement um, and, and people's willingness or not to say, I've been mentally ill, and I think it is, has been in many societies harder for men to admit to frailties, emotional frailties. The data we have now um, is much more robust um, and it isn't showing those gender differences that, that we used to see. But we still don't have good international data on children's mental health. It's a real gap. So, I, I mean, I think we've got an epidemic of mental health problems in Western developed countries. We're just starting to recognize it. We're just starting to think about how to deal with it. We still actually don't have great data to underpin um, underpin our analysis of what, what needs to be done. It's a real gap. But things have moved on. So, sorry, guys. I think you are all mentally affected by inequality. Yeah, it's, it's part of the picture that violence... And, you know, if you lose your job, if you get the sack, or your partner leaves you for someone else, do you blame yourself, or do you blame other people? Uh, do you take it out on them or on yourself? Uh, and there's a tendency in... in uh, some analyses for suicide and homicide to move in, uh, move inversely, and we do think that the uh, that inequality uh, societies with greater inequality means you blame other people for everything. Uh, where the more equal societies, you're more likely to blame yourself. Uh, so, uh, and and I think this is uh, 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 there's a difference in the gender responses on that uh, dimension. Um, I would like to say about the civic participation, um, and we, we think that an important part of the decline in civic participation with inequality uh, is that for many of us, social, social contact becomes an ordeal. And if you live in a society where some people are supremely important and others are regarded as almost worthless, then, you know, we tend to judge each other more by status and feel more judged by status. Uh, so all those issues of self-worth and social comparisons become much more lo loaded. Um, and uh, Kate described, you can either uh, withdraw, become depressed, and so on, um, or you can big yourself up in, in relation to, in response to your worries about how you're seen in I, I think it's been a bit of sort of, um, sort of public self-discovery in a way. It came about with things like the global financial crisis and with things like the MPs' expenses scandals. I think huge numbers of people in this country, in the United States and in other countries didn't actually realize how rich some people were, you know, how much they had exploited um, other people, how much they had extracted for themselves. I think that was a real shock yeah. to lots of people. Um, and I think when the, you get a greater public awareness of that divide, then you start to get people feeling angry, isolated, left behind, abandoned, and why would they vote? 
you know, why, why would they vote for somebody who's going to spend thousands on a duck house? <laughs> oh, um, yeah, the motor you know, house. So, so I, do th- I do think that's been a sort of shift in people's awareness. And, and the shift, I mean, the lack of awareness goes the other way as well. I mean, I do a lot of um, research in Bradford, which is the fifth largest city in the UK. It's very poor. Um, and if you drive around Bradford... It looks, it looks old-fashioned. It looks poor. And if you go down south and you drive around a city in the south, you don't see anything like that. And so if I'm in a city in the south, I think, how do people here know what life is like in, in those cities up north? How, how can they imagine what people's livelihoods are like, what, what, what the streets are like, what housing is like, what the school's like? I think we've got huge divides in this country, north-south divides, income divides, ethnic divides, um, and when people are separated from each other and can't understand each other's ways of being, then they don't have empathy. Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah, really Empathy key. doesn't cross that divide. I was thinking about the research we did on the media and the kind of 30 years of concerted... Um, demonising of the working class of all its different varieties so if they don't have any contact they have no knowledge and their only sources are really bad reality TV which then the news takes up you know even the Today programme now is more like a reality TV programme to me which is just condemnatory about those who've been impoverished over years Um, it seems to me, how would they have sympathy? Because I always thought that if you actually told people about inequality, they think it was horrific and they do something about it. But no. Yes, part of our view of the effect of inequality is it increases all the, what I call the downward prejudices. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, all the questions about self-worth become more powerful. All the little social awkwardnesses with our worries about how we're seen and judged. And those are so divisive. So, any more questions? I'll go for the middle section now. Okay, uh, where's the microphone? So if we start here and we'll take the first three going up. We'll go for the top later, don't worry. Um, so one there. And then behind you. Hi, um, is it okay if I ask you? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks for your talk. I was wondering because your research really focuses on income inequality. I know, being Dutch myself, that for quite some countries, the level of income inequality is perhaps not very high, but wealth equality is. So most of the inequality stems from, for example, you know, the inheritance and, and, and those kind of systems. So just being curious, how would that change or affect the argument that you make? That's great. And if you want to pass it back, I think it's about one, yeah, two, three rows back. You can Thank you. Uh, mine's a very simple question, really, following on with what you were saying about Bradford. Um, are there any graphs similar to the ones you've shown, uh, but for individual cities in Britain rather than countries of the world? 
Yeah. 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 Nirvana, seemingly. <laughs> and the other end, we've got, you know, naked, bare capitalism, bankrupting countries and the, the people being made to, to bail out the bankers, perversely, and the, the, the working class being the whipping boys for all that. Um, is it just down to the economic model? Keynesianism seemed to do us all right. We seem to have a, an understanding between government and people. We had the cradle to grave. We had people who were engaged in worthwhile jobs. Uh, might not have been an economic sense yep. a worthwhile job. But once a monetary value is placed on everyone's lives... That's when the economic inequality began. May the 3rd, 1979, not to mention any names. And, um, you know, your mates at um, the Chicago School have got a lot to answer for, perhaps. Not my mates. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't in economics. Say that loosely. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Do you want to take those? Yeah, do you want to do the first one? Um, okay, the, the wealth inequality. Um, ideally, I think we'd have a, a, an index, a weighted index that combined uh, um, income and wealth inequalities. Um, there is, uh, when we were doing this, um, and still I think there's less good uh, internationally comparable data on, on wealth inequality, though people are working on it. I've seen one paper... Uh, looking at uh, health in relation to, to wealth inequality. And the relationship actually looks very like uh, it does for income inequality. You know, I do think the fundamental thing is material uh, distances between us. Uh, in a way, status and hierarchy, if you think of it in evolutionary terms, is about privileged access to scarce resources. You know, I do think that uh, the material differences are pretty fundamental. Um, and uh, income is only part of it, obviously. Um, yeah, I might have a go at the third question too. Has this been cities? Cities. Uh, one, two, three. Cities. There's, there's been several papers, uh, principally American uh, data, looking at inequality within cities. It's a bit hard to judge how much uh, uh, the inequality in cities is simply a reflection of. Um, inequality in the states they're in, um, but certainly uh, analyses using city data um, uh, comes up with uh, rather impressive results in relation to the social damage of inequality. Um, but I think people often actually make a mistake and think this is all about face-to-face -face relationships. And so you should really be measuring inequality in face-to-face -face relationships in the local community. The issue is perhaps whether my neighbor has a better car than I do. Uh, the studies which look at in measure inequality just within small areas 
uh, are much less likely to show an association between any of these health and social problems and income inequality. And I think that is because a poor, deprived area uh, doesn't have uh, it, 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 it doesn't have poor health because of the inequality within it. It has poor health because it's deprived in relation to the rest of society. And your measures of inequality must uh, take that into account. That's partly why I emphasize that, you know, it's, it's not separate from class and status. I think it's a matter of whether we have a very steep social pyramid like that or a much shallower one. And in some mysterious way, we do all know where we fit into the social hierarchy, um, what our class is, uh, and we find endless ways to express it in our uh, clothing and uh, aesthetic taste and 101 other ways. All of our neighbours do have better cars than <laughs> Yeah. They do, don't they? Yeah. And, and they get the weeds off their driveway. I think we're considered a bit, a bit difficult. We're the only Guardian readers in our village. <laughs> and... Um, one time, a few years ago, maybe about ten years ago, my son, who was young, put a Labour poster in the window when there was a general election coming up, and we were asked by a local farmer not to go into his wood anymore. <laughs> across his land. Oh. It turned out not to be his wood. It wasn't later. even his wood. It wasn't even his wood. What did he think you were going to do? I don't know. I don't know. But Vote in the wood. I don't know. But we, we've nicknamed him Farmer Ukip, haven't we? Um, so, on the, on the issue of like Scandinavian versus sort of the Anglo-speaking world, I mean, clear, clearly there are differences in the welfare regimes that different societies put in place. But every relationship we've shown you, you know, across those different countries, we, we show the same thing across the 50 U.S. states as well. We've got studies from Latin America that, you know, look at different countries, um, their income inequality in relation to health, provinces of China, um, countries in Eastern Europe, um, and we just see the same pattern over and over. So I, I think it's too simplistic to think that it's about welfare regimes or culture. Um, I think the income differences do matter, but I think there must be feedback loops between all of those things. If you have a more equal society, it's probably easier to get people to keep voting for progressive policies, taxes, etc., etc., educational policy. Um, but I think the income differences matter themselves, and it's not just a question of um, differences in cultural welfare regime. Do you want to add to that? Yeah, there are very different ways, of course, in becoming a, a more equal society, whether yeah. you do it by reducing income differences before tax or through redistribution, and both of them seem to have the health and social benefits. Um, but I think one shouldn't think of it just as economic models uh, you know, economic models are, I believe, driven by, by politics and ideology. Um, neoliberalism is an ideology that, that spread uh, everywhere from the, the, the late 70s, early 80s onwards. Um, and, you know, again and again in history, we've seen uh, this sort of sweep internationally of ideologies 
whether it's the 1848 revolutions or the radicalism of the 1960s or the conservatism, the neoliberalism from the 80s onwards. Um, and I, I think that those, that's, those are the battles we have to fight. But I do remember giving some lectures in Chile soon after the military government had fallen um, or uh, been replaced. And we were talking about this sort of stuff. Um, this was before we'd met. <laughs> um, and right. I thought Kate might be, might be thinking of it as, a, as me giving an inaccurate account of the last time we were in Chile together. <laughs> but uh, people said, you've given us hope. And we didn't understand what they meant. And they said that after the military dictatorship, uh, they'd been dictated to by the World Bank. Um, and they felt what we, we'd done was showing there are choices within capitalism, um, or different forms of capitalism, if you like. Okay, so over here, I'll, I'll work <laughs> up. Or actually, you had, you, that's an overdose. You had your hand up uh, in the blue suit up there, and then I'll work back down. Loose. Ah. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I'll come over to that side next then. Um, Paul Hudson, I wanted to ask you a, a couple of questions on the graphs. Uh, this is in part of. Um, Can you put your microphone? Sorry, I beg your pardon. Paul on. Hudson. Um, I just wanted to ask you a, question, ah, a couple of questions on the graphs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning, you see. <laughs> Even in old age, one's got to learn. Um, okay. There was one of the graphs concerning um, the well-being of children and pertaining to an axis, the vertical axis, you said there are, I think you said there are 27 components to it. So I wondered, in fact, how you aggregated it and how you determined, in fact, the weights to be given mm. to the various components. Yeah. And then on the second graph, which was um, concerned where you had interviews with people from different nationalities as to whether they felt depressed or not, um, I think it's a case that in some cultures, people are willing to discuss whether they feel depressed or not. Um, maybe there are questions of cognitive dissonance involved. A friend of mine in Germany, this is where I worked for six years of my academic life, she made some very interesting, um, and she lived actually in England as well for some years. She mentioned that um, British people are much more willing to discuss openly their uh, mental uh, or psychological problems, much more so than in Germany. Okay. I wondered how you could control for that. Yep. Okay, do you want to the, the man in the blue suit? I wanted to ask... Uh, what role do you think schools, or perhaps more broadly, educational policies play in perpetuating inequalities? Yeah. And what role you thought they might play in, in providing a, a solution? I ask in part because of your comment during your, your introduction um, of meritocracy uh, not yeah. reducing inequality, and um, my feeling that meritocratic principles are probably at the heart of a lot of our um, approach to education. Mm -hmm. Okay, can we take it right to the back now and then we'll come back down for the next uh, round. 
And then I think that will be it. <laughs> yeah, because we give really long answers. Um, hello. Um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm from the land of Trump. Um, <laughs> and currently, uh, we're, you know, in the press for the Me Too movement and obviously Kavanaugh. So I was wondering what impact you think gender equality would uh, do, at least in the U.S. or everywhere on the wage gap or equality, uh, specifically in terms of active parents, uh, reproductive rights, and uh, overall uh, planned parenthood. Great, thank you. Okay, you okay with that? Right, so yeah. I'll do the you graph first. ones first. Um, child well-being, that index um, is created by UNICEF, not by us. Um, it, it has varied slightly over the years, so they've They've published um, an index of child well-being in rich countries in 2007, in 2013 or 14? 13 and last year. The components of it have shifted a bit over time, although there's usually you know, some core ones that stay in, and they weight everything equally. All factors in that are weighted equally. And um, I know the people who developed it, and, you know, I've had conversations with them, and their justification for weighting everything equally is they don't know how to weight them differently. You know, they're, they're not sure what is more important for child well-being than others, so they, so they, they do it that way. Um, I think it's defensible, but you could also argue with it. One of the components, actually, is the proportion of children in relative poverty in each society. Yeah, so we take that out. <laughs> because it would be rather a circular argument to show yeah. that relative poverty is... Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, some people say, well, it contains things that are the causes of poor child well-being, as well as metrics that are about the outcome of child well-being. But it's somebody else's measure, um, that one. On the, on the um, depression... So the graph we showed on mental illness isn't people saying they're depressed or not. It's from surveys that ask about symptoms. So it's not your willingness. It's, and, and so it can't be, it's not susceptible to cultural differences in people's willingness to say they're mentally unwell. Maybe there are cultural differences in people's willingness to say that they don't feel hungry much or they felt they didn't sleep well last night, whatever, I don't know. But, but the measures are trying to overcome that. And the depression one we showed was for U.S. states. Um, so there shouldn't be cultural differences, I would have thought, between the states and people's willingness to admit that they're depressed. Shall I do the schools one, or do you want to? Yeah, and just to let me add to what you said, that, and these problems in a way are less serious because some of the differences uh, we show in the graphs are huge. So, you know, the, the homicide one, I showed you, there were tenfold differences. The same, similarly with um, uh, infant, uh, no, not infant mortality, teenage birth rates, uh, also in the proportion of the population in prison. A number of things have these huge differences related to inequality, um, and I think none of them are smaller than two- or threefold differences. So... You know, if they were all very close, if the scores were all very similar, I'd be more worried that it was uh, simply a reflection of cultural bias of some kind. Should I do schools? Yeah. Right, so I could talk for hours about schools. Yeah, we're Sorry, we're talking for hours about everything, aren't we? Schools. If we expect our schools to fix the structural problems of deprivation, austerity, poverty and inequality, we're just balmy. 
They cannot. They cannot do it. Teachers can't do it. Um, we know that we have big differences in cognitive development and social and emotional development among children way before they ever get to school. You know, in the very, very, very early years of life, probably pregnancy, etc., etc. So expecting schools to fix that is bonkers. Expecting an education system to fix that, that is based on um, valuing one kind of achievement so much more than any other. You know, we, we really value um, a kind of cognition that I'm good at, so I've been really lucky, but we don't value emotional intelligence in the same way. We don't value other kinds of contributions. We've got an unequal system staffed by teachers who are not trained to think reflexively about what the, what the classroom is like, where their children are coming from in the ways they used to be. I just don't think it can do it. Schools can help. Early childhood education can help. They can also make it worse. Mostly they make it worse. Fin Finland... Does, did it differently. Finland in the 1970s decided to have a big national conversation about their poor educational attainment, made all of their schools public, trained teachers better, paid them more, saw their educational attainment rise. We don't even seem willing to, to think about those kinds of things. And um, no, I think schools, as Richard said, often make things worse. But expecting them to make things better is, is, is sort of unfair. But I, I think it's also really important to remember the huge step change in inequality that happened in the 1980s in Britain was not a change in educational policy. It came from other sources um, uh, that we've briefly mentioned. Okay. Oh, so we, oh, oh there's oh. one more. About women. Oh. So we'll let Richard answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think all the other dimensions of, of uh, inequality, whether it's gender um, or sexual orientation or race um, or class, they're not such completely different things. You know, when any, anything becomes a marker of low social status, whether it's skin colour, or the religious, um, your religious affiliation, or what language group you belong to in some societies, uh, or your gender. When they become markers of low social <coughs> status, uh, they attract all the very similar prejudices, the kind of processes we've been uh, talking about. Um, so, I, and you know, poverty wouldn't be a much nicer experience if you knew that. Um, representative numbers of uh, black and white men and women, uh, Protestants and Catholics, were poor. Uh, what we have to do is uh, deal with the problem of poverty and inequality, uh, and these things are all linked. The position of women, their pay disadvantage, um, is bigger in more unequal countries for fairly obvious reasons. And, of course, the question was also about rights, I mean, the link between human rights and social justice and, and our research, you know, it, it's quite deep and it's, it's clearly there. But in a way, it isn't necessary. You can make arguments for greater equality from 
a rights perspective or a social justice perspective without any of the data we've shown you. You know, you could make a philosophical, ideological argument for justice and rights and equality. Um, but I think our data help. <laughs> Can I make one more point on borrowed time? Uh, and the education question, you know, the idea that we are meritocracy and your genetic endowment of ability affects where you end up and the meritocracy is a reflection of these natural differences in ability, we have a chapter uh, taking that uh, to pieces, looking at how uh, even if there are small environmental differences in different kinds of, many different kinds of abilities, uh, they get uh, enhanced, uh, amplified uh, by the kind of um, uh, uh, environment you choose. So, you know, if you're genetically a bit better at ball games, then you start enjoying it more, you get selected for the school team, you practice more. Uh, and so on, and you end up much better at ball games than people who thought they were, a bit, they were bad at it. And the same with endless other abilities. And I, I, I think we make a fairly good case uh, that actually the main differences in ability are not the determinant of position in the hierarchy, but position in the hierarchy is more determinant of differences in ability. I'm afraid I will cut you off at that point, but to say, before, before we thank Kate and Richard, that in the book there is a particular chapter on meritocracy, uh, which includes all the other myths in terms of uh, inequity that we live through, including delusions of grandeur, which I think is very important. So I'd like to say a huge thanks.